0: Chapter 3. Crying Wolf The New Age movement is a hot topic in conservative Christian circles these days. New Age humanism was first discussed in detail from a Christian perspective by Dr. Gary North in Chapter 9 of his 1976 book, None Dare Call It Witchcraft, updated in 1986 as Unholy Spirits. Constance Cumbie later wrote a best-selling book on the topic in 1983, The Hidden Dangers of the Rainbow. The basic ideas of the New Age movement are ancient, cosmic evolution, the self-transcendence of man into God through higher consciousness techniques, for example, yoga, and reincarnation, karma. The New Age groups are numerous, but they are quite small. They possess nothing like the membership of, say, the Southern Baptist Association. They are having a growing influence in the media, however, which makes them appear to be more influential than they actually are. Why should the New Agers appear seemingly overnight in the 1970s and exert even greater visibility in the 1980s? One reason is that what social commentator Tom Wolfe called the me generation continues into the 80s. The primary focus of concern for most New Agers is internal uplift, personal spiritual evolution, and escape from the rat race. Some New Agers are power seekers, but not the vast majority. The cultural retreat and quietism of Hindu mystics is representative of the New Age movement. New Agers much prefer getting into tune with cosmic waves than designing hydroelectric power systems. In short, the New Agers were and are in sync with the present oriented, humanistic me generation, despite all their rhetoric about cosmic evolution. The New Age movement should not be taken lightly, but neither should we cringe in its presence. This book is designed to put present events, both good and evil, into biblical and historical perspective. We believe that the New Age movement is humanism becoming more and more consistent with its foredoomed attempts to rebel against God. As with all those who oppose the Lord and His law, they will not make further progress, 2 Timothy 3.9. Why such visible progress? Weeds advance when little effort is expanded to remove them from a carefully prepared, once vibrant garden. Anti-Christian systems progress because the church does very little to challenge them. More often than not, we find the church retreating from battle instead of leading the charge against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6.11. As we will show, this program of cultural retreat has not been the position of the church down through the centuries. The advance of civilization came with the advance of Christianity. God has always called Christians to set the agenda, to be a light in a world where there is darkness. Those outside of Christ are to see our good works so they can glorify God who is in heaven, Matthew 5.16. The redeemed in Christ are to act as signposts to point the lost to Christ. In Jesus' day, miracles were used. Today, God calls on his new creations to perform the task through their fruit of gospel works. It is our contention that this vision has been lost in a day when the church is preoccupied with signs it believes point to the end of the world. Today there is a new agenda. The church has taken a defensive posture, fighting battles when the war is just about over. If God has given us time, then we should get busy with the work at hand. Idleness is apt to give the devil an opportunity, Ephesians 4.27 In this chapter, we will explore the impact of the notion that we are the last generation before Jesus returns. Is the so-called prophetic clock of Daniel ticking once again? Are our present troubles an indication that Jesus will return in our generation, or are we misusing the events of history to form a strained view of Bible prophecy? For centuries, various Christian and other groups have tried to attach dates to these prophecies with spectacularly little success. Will modern prophetic writers suffer a similar fate? Hunt's Challenge Dave Hunt's books have been helpful in many ways. They expose dangerous trends in theological thinking. Many of today's new theologies thrive because there is little familiarity with the Bible and the centuries of theological debate during which the basics of orthodoxy were developed. This is most clearly evident, for example, in the teaching by some that Christians are little gods. An experienced cult watcher like Dave Hunt immediately saw the dangers inherent in such thinking. Dr. Gary North, whose None Dare Call It Witchcraft, 1976, exposed the festering sore of New Age humanism in the mid-70s, points out that today, there is no doubt that some of the positive confession preachers, have not come to grips with the Bible's teaching on Christology that Jesus Christ in his incarnation was alone fully God and perfectly human. Some of them have verbally equated Christian conversion with becoming divine. This is unquestionably incorrect. At conversion, the Christian definitively has imputed to him Christ's perfect humanity, not his divinity, which he then progressively manifests through his earthly lifetime by means of his progressive ethical sanctification. But their confusion of language is a testimony of their lack of theological understanding. They mean Christ-perfect humanity when they say Christ-divinity. Those who don't mean this will eventually drift away from the orthodox faith. These cautions are necessary. If a segment of the Church of Jesus Christ is drifting into the swift currents of doctrinal error, then life rafts must be sent out to rescue them. Doctrinally, mature Christians should call the immature back to the truth, not sink them in their struggle. But Hunt's books must be read on two levels. On the first level, he critiques positive and possibility thinking, healing of memories, self-help philosophies, and holistic medicine, and their association with sorcery, scientism, shamanism, and aspects of burgeoning New Age movement. Most of what Hunt writes about these errors is quite accurate and should be taken to heart. It is possible, however, that many of those who hold these views are not consciously rejecting the Orthodox faith. Of course, this does not lessen the damage that can be done. A number of these ministers have little theological training. Moreover, they are rarely students of the history of theological debate. Their no creed but Christ has gotten them into doctrinal hot water. Other critics of Hunt's sweeping indictment believe that he failed to raise the possibility that these men are mistaken, but are not consciously perpetuating false doctrine. Doug Gruthius, a well-published expert on the New Age movement, states that while Hunt's criticisms of the positive confession movement are valid, his analysis overall is sometimes too heavy-handed. In a review of The Seduction of Christianity, Gruthius warns that the reader should be careful, though, to assess each person separately. Some of those cited have strayed far from the truth. Others have committed only minor errors. Ultimately, the authors have not drawn careful distinction. This is the greatest flaw in seduction. It is indeed a blast of the trumpet, and lacks the clarity of sharply individual notes of warning. Offenders are sometimes lumped together unfairly. For example, Hunt and McMahon are critical of Christians who call for an exercise of dominion over the earth and concern for society. They have succumbed to a selfish, we-can-do-it attitude, according to the authors. Many Christians who pursue social renewal, however, are doctrinally sound. They look to God, not self, to turn the world right side up the late Francis Schaeffer, was a shining example. The Apostle Paul reminded the early church leadership that false doctrines will find their way into the fellowship of the saints. Even with the apostles still preaching and teaching, the early church was not immune to false doctrine. Paul writes about those who will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. He even mentions some by name, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 1, 18-20 Our analysis, however, does not focus on the sections in Hunt's book where he critiques psychotherapy, visualization, meditation, biofeedback, positive confession, positive or possibility thinking, hypnosis, holistic medicine, and a whole spectrum of self-improvement and success motivation techniques. Rather, the reduction of Christianity deals with the second level of Hunt's work. Dave Hunt and others believe that New Age humanism and the theological imprecision of a number of positive confession preachers is nothing less than the prelude to the great apostasy predicted in the Bible. It is Dave Hunt's opinion that we are living in the last days. The Great Tribulation is almost upon us, and Jesus should be returning to planet Earth in the very near future. Thus, in Hunt's opinion, those who teach that the Church is headed for victory are on the edge of apostasy. In short... Hunt's own eschatological, in-times, viewpoint influences his evaluation of a group of theologians, scholars, pastors, and writers who preach and teach a position that has been called Dominion Theology. The Shift in Eschatology Apostasy has marred the Church for centuries, and the Church has dealt with it, time after time, without the world coming to an end we suggest that the present preoccupation with the end of the world may be a false alarm pulled by the devil to keep the church from working at its full mission. The devil leads Christians to believe that changing the world is hopeless. One dominion theology critic tells us, God's word is clear that before Jesus returns, tremendous evil will encompass the governments of the world. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Revelation 6 and 7. We might not like that prospect, but God's word is without error. The Bible is used to support this position, as we would expect. This is the devil's greatest tactic. He convinces Christians that they are being faithful to the word of God by doing nothing to resist culturally while they watch the world collapsing around them. What a great demonic tactic. The anti-dominionist argument runs approximately as follows. The Bible predicts the inevitability of evil's progress. Today's visibly advancing evil is a prelude to the second coming of Christ, where Jesus will rapture the saints, defeat the Antichrist, and establish his earthly millennial rule. Any discussion about long-term victory for the church does not match up with what the Bible predicts concerning the end of the world. All talk about noble ideas of bringing about a transformation of society through which righteousness will be manifested are doomed to failure. We should not be surprised to learn that the secular humanists are delighted with the doctrinal system espoused by Dave Hunt, David Wilkerson, and others. Long term Christians who do not see any societal change coming from Christians are not seen as a threat to the humanist agenda. Christians have no plans for planet Earth. The humanists have comprehensive plans, and with the present climate of prophetic speculation, they do not fear fatalistic and immobilized Christians. What they fear are Christians who are confident of the church's earthly victory. A number of articles have appeared in humanist publications that show how mobilized Christians are a threat to the humanist cause. Here's an example. And it is precisely this change in thinking from premillennialism to postmillennialism under the influence of Christian reconstructionism that has made possible the religious right and the political mobilization of millions of otherwise fatalistic fundamentalists. Now this should not disturb the humanist unless there is a perceived threat to their man-centered agenda, and not only a threat, but the distinct possibility of Christians scoring major cultural victories. The humanists, it seems, have more regard for the effect Christians can have in and on the world than do some notable Christian leaders and writers. A Deafening Silence A shift in eschatology has taken place. In general terms, there has been a shift from pessimism to optimism. For most of the 20th century, Orthodox Christians who have held a premillennial position have remained relatively silent regarding social issues. One reason is that, as John Walvrood, former president and now chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, writes, they know that our efforts to make society Christianized are futile because the Bible does not teach it. Much of this attitude has to do more with current events than with interpreting the Bible. There is also a reaction to 19th century theological liberalism that spawned the social gospel era. It, too, was optimistic. Today, some dispensational premillennialists equate postmillennialism with liberalism and the social gospel. Hal Lindsey writes of postmillennialism, There used to be a group called postmillennialists. They believed that the Christians would root out the evil in the world, abolish godless rulers, and convert the world through ever-increasing evangelism until they brought about the kingdom of God on earth through their own efforts. Then after a thousand years of the institutional church reigning on the earth with peace, equality, and righteousness, Christ would return and time would end. These people rejected much of the scripture as being literal and believed in the inherent goodness of man. World War I greatly disheartened this group, and World War II virtually wiped out this viewpoint. No self-respecting scholar who looks at the world conditions and the accelerating decline of Christian influence today is a post-millennialist. Let's rephrase Mr. Lindsay's assertion in the light of Numbers 13-14 and Joshua 2, 8-14. No self-respecting Israelite who looks at the land of Canaan and the decline of Israel's faithfulness can ever believe that we can take the land because we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight, Numbers 13.33. In the minds of many students of eschatology, postmillennialism was stripped off the centrality of the gospel message and became the darling of the purveyors of the social gospel. The reaction of many Christian leaders was to repudiate not only theological liberalism, but also postmillennialism and the social dimension of the gospel. This is a mistake and a misreading of history. Now, the formerly withdrawn church is emerging from the sanctuary of the cave to take the world of unbridled secularism. See Judges 6, 1-18. Many who have moved to earthly optimism have not formally rejected their dispensational premillennial views. All they know is that they are tired of getting their heads kicked in by the humanist and that they are willing to work to change things no matter when Jesus returns. Their children are being propagandized in the public schools. Abortion is making them feel guilty for doing little, if anything, about the issues in 1973 during the infamous Roe v. Wade pro abortion decision, and they sense the constant ridicule in the press for their deeply held religious convictions. No more Mr. Nice Guy For these energized Christians, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. Jerry Falwell is a good example of someone who has shifted his emphasis from quietism in 1965 to action beyond the four walls of the church. In a sermon delivered in 1965 entitled Ministers and Marchers, Falwell said, As far as the relationship of the church to the world, It can be expressed as simply as the three words which Paul gave to Timothy. Preach the word. This message is designed to go right to the heart of man, and there meet his deep spiritual need. Nowhere are we commissioned to reform the externals. We are not told to wage war against bootleggers, liquor stores, gamblers, murderers, prostitutes, racketeers, prejudiced persons, or institutions, or any other existing evil as such. Our ministry is not reformation, but transformation. The gospel does not clean up the outside, but rather regenerates the inside. While we are told to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, in the true interpretation, we have very few ties on this earth. We pay our taxes, cast our votes as responsibility of citizenship, obey the laws of the land, and other things demanded of us by the society in which we live. But at the same time, we are cognizant that our only purpose on this earth is to know Christ and to make him known. Believing the Bible as I do, I would find it impossible to stop preaching the pure saving gospel of Jesus Christ and begin doing anything else, including fighting communism or participating in civil rights reforms. Fifteen years later, Dr. Falwell repudiated his earlier remarks, calling them false prophecy. In Listen, America... Reverend Falwell outlines his new agenda. I am seeking to rally together the people of this country who still believe in decency, the home, the family, morality, the free enterprise system, and all the great ideals that are the cornerstone of this nation. Against the growing tide of permissiveness and moral decay that is crushing our society, we must make a sacred commitment to God Almighty to turn this nation around immediately. Many have noted the shift— Dave Hunt, David Wilkerson, Jimmy Swaggart, and others have noticed. As the earlier quotation from The Humanist shows, the humanists are also aware of it, and they are not happy with the turn of events. Paul G. Kirk Jr., chairman of the Democratic National Committee, labeled conservatism, Bible-believing Christians who are involved in politics, as an extremist faction. He is most concerned about the presidential candidacy of Pat Robertson. Kirk makes the following points. 1. The idea that a Christian like Pat Robertson may run for president is very frightening. 2. Pat Robertson is an ultra-fundamentalist. The emphasis is on extremism. He's not just a fundamentalist. He's an ultra-fundamentalist. 3. Pat Robertson is one of the most radical right-wing leaders in America. Notice the term radical. 4. Pat Robertson is one of the most powerful public figures in America today. Is power evil? 5. According to Mr. Kirk... Pat Robertson is beginning to worry the leaders of both the Democratic and Republican parties. After listing the impact that Pat Robertson has through his donor list, Television Network, and the recently disbanded Freedom Council, Mr. Kirk makes this statement, But his greatest threat is not his powerful organization. It is the enormous political muscle of the religious right. So then, Pat Robertson is not the only perceived threat. All Christians who hold to certain fundamental beliefs are the enemies of the political faith. The real issue is Christian involvement. Pat Robertson is just a visible target, someone to raise funds by shooting at. If a representative of a perceived monolithic movement can be shot down, then the movement itself is immobilized. It is not our purpose to endorse Pat Robertson, nor to criticize his desire to seek the presidency. Neither is it our purpose to judge Democrats— we are firmly convinced that there are Republicans who hold similar views. The point we are trying to make is that Christian involvement is seen as a threat by some very powerful people. We have to ask why. The Heresy of the Faithful The humanists are opportunist. They go after weak points. One weak point that they have exploited is the fling that many Christians have with the Manichaean and Neoplatonic worldviews. While the Bible addresses only spiritual issues such as prayer and Bible reading, we are told that it has little if anything to say about secular matters such as economics and politics unless we're dealing with the tithe and church government. Sin and the power of the devil make it nearly impossible for Christians to effect any real and permanent societal changes, we are assured. The church's only recourse is to retreat to the spiritual dimension, R.J. Rushduni has called this the heresy of the faithful. Many people excuse the extensive apostasy in the church by pointing to original sin. Man is so great a sinner, we are told, that we should not be surprised at the extensive sway of unbelief in the very hearts of the faithful, let alone the world. We are reminded that the heart of man is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9 This is true, but the scripture is not a Manichaean document. It does not assert that Satan and sin have power equal to or greater than God and his grace. On the contrary, God is greater than our hearts, 1 John 3.20. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, 1 John 4.4. 4. Great and almighty is our sovereign and triune God, and we cannot limit his power without sinning, nor can we ascribe the helplessness of the church to the greater power of sin and Satan. Rather, we must ascribe it to the heresy and laziness of believers who limit God in their unbelief. Related to this acceptance of apostasy, which is an implicit acceptance of the superiority of Satan, is the surrender of this world to Satan and to unbelievers. For those who see no hope for this world, this side of heaven, God is seen as orchestrating the events of history for the imminent rapture of the saints, to deliver them from the mess of history. At the same time, the devil is marshalling his forces of evil against the people of God. This is an old, old story, repeated century after century, when external events begin to press in on Christians. These two events are necessary and inevitable, say the proponents of earthly defeat, just prior to the rapture of the saints. We supposedly should expect the advance of evil and the decline of those things explicitly Christian. One author goes so far as to say that America will be destroyed by fire, sudden destruction is coming, and few will escape. Unexpectedly, and in one hour, a hydrogen holocaust will engulf America, and this nation will be no more. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 1834-1892, the great Baptist preacher and evangelist of the 19th century, shows how pessimism robs the church of its vitality and stunts its growth. David was not a believer in the theory that the world will grow worse and worse, and that the dispensation will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Earth's sun is to go down amid tenfold night if some of our prophetic brethren are to be believed. Not so do we expect but we look for a day when the dwellers in all lands shall learn righteousness shall trust in the savior shall worship thee alone o god and shall glorify thy name the modern notion has greatly dampened the zeal of the church for missions and the sooner it is shown to be unscriptural for the better for the cause of god it neither consorts with prophecy honors god nor inspires the church with ardor far hence it be driven For nearly a hundred years, Christians have been in retreat. Through the adoption of pagan ideas about the world, some Christians have concluded that matter, this world, is of little value while spiritual things, heaven, are the only real focus of Christians' attention. While Christianity became more and more pietistic and retreatist, secularism became, because of little opposition from dominion-oriented Christians, aggressive and dominating. At last, Christians are beginning to fight back. This is why Hunt and many others are upset. This confident and optimistic vision of the future, according to Hunt, indicates that we are in the final apostasy. The idea of cultural victory by Christians is anathema to Dave Hunt. The idea of cultural defeat is pure orthodoxy, the old-time religion of 1830. Is this really the end? Hunt concludes that 1 Timothy 4.1 addresses this very situation, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. The advocates of the the near-end-of-the-world scenario of future events want to project Paul's warning into what would have been the distant future when Paul wrote his epistle. Little thought is given to the possibility that the latter times that Paul had in mind were in the early church's near future, the end of the Jewish age just prior to AD 70. We use similar language with little, if any, confusion. A politician might remark that he will announce his candidacy at a later time. The audience understands this as, in the near future. He is biding his time, but not for 1900 years. In fact, there have always been Christians who have been preoccupied with the end of the world and the return of Christ. The sack of Rome by the Vandals, AD 410, was supposed to bring on the end. The birth of the Inquisition, 1209-1244, prompted many well-meaning saints to conclude that it was the beginning of the end. The Black Death that killed millions was viewed as the prelude to the demise of the world, 1347-1350. Martin Luther frequently expressed the opinion that the end was very near, though he felt it was unwise to predict an exact date. Christians, he said, No more know the exact time of Christ's return than little babies in their mother's bodies know about their arrival. This, however, did not stop him from concluding that the end was not too far off. In January 1532, he wrote, The last day is at hand. My calendar has run out. I know nothing more in my scriptures. As it turned out, there was a lot more time to go after 1532. Many other disasters, natural and political, gave rise to the same speculation, century after century. Disasters on the front page of their newspapers send far too many Christians scurrying to the back pages of their Bibles. Such fears and delusions become grist for the humanist historian's mill. Contemporary events like the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 were interpreted as evidence of the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Above all, the French Revolution excited a spat of interpretations on both sides of the Atlantic designed to show that the world was entering upon the last days. Millennialism was widely espoused by leading scholars and divines. In America, the names of Timothy Dwight, president of Yale, John H. Livingston, president of Rutgers, and Joseph Priestley come to mind. In Britain, George Stanley Faber, Edward King, and Edward Irving. A spat of pamphlets and sermons by Church of England clergy and Orthodox American ministers poured forth from the 1790s, and there was constant reference back to the prophetical studies of Sir Isaac Newton, Joseph Meade, and William Whiston. The usual method of interpretation was some variant of the year-day theory, by which days mentioned in the prophecies were counted as years, weeks as seven-year periods, and months as thirty years. There was general agreement in the late 18th century that the 1,260 days mentioned in Revelation 12.6 were to be interpreted as 1,260 years, and that this period was now ended. An alternative theory, which became increasingly popular after 1800, emphasized the importance of the 2300-year period of Daniel 8.14, and the cleansing of the sanctuary, which would fall due sometime in the 1840s. The fulfillment of the time prophecies meant that mankind was living in the last days, that the midnight cry might soon be heard, and that the coming of the Messiah might be expected shortly. Such beliefs had an influence far beyond the members of explicitly Adventist sects. They were part and parcel of everyday evangelical religion. In the 20th century, there has been wide speculation that the end of the world is just around the next world disaster. The onslaught of World War I led many to conclude that Armageddon was at hand. We are not yet in the Armageddon struggle proper, but at its commencement. And it may be, if students of prophecy read the signs right, that Christ will come before the present war closes, and before Armageddon. The war preliminary to Armageddon, it seems, has commenced. The war he is talking about is World War I. Benito Mussolini... Adolf Hitler, Henry Kissinger, and the papacy have been mistakenly identified as the Antichrist. In scripture, the word Antichrist is often plural, and it refers to anyone who denies that Christ came in the flesh to save his people. See 1 John 2, 18, 22. Taken out of its historical context, almost anyone can be the Antichrist. How Lindsey is correct. However, we must not indulge in speculation about whether any of the current figures is the Antichrist. Predictions of the near end of the world have been prominent feature of recent evangelical thought. Looking back, we can say with confidence that they were wrong. Of course, this does not mean that current predictions are automatically wrong because they have been wrong in the past. It does mean, however, that we should be careful when it comes to analyzing the Bible in terms of contemporary events in what one writer has described as newspaper exegesis. Historian Mark Knoll again writes, The verdict of history seems clear. Great spiritual gain comes from living under the expectation of Christ's return. But wisdom and restraint are also in order. At the very least, it would be well for those in our age who predict details and dates for the end to remember how many before them have misread the signs of the times. The historical landscape is filled with the failed prophetic pronouncements by some of the best-intentioned biblical expositors. It seems that every disaster and every deviation from orthodox doctrine is heaped upon piles of wild, prophetic speculation to prepare, and culturally paralyze, another generation of anxious Christians to meet Jesus in the air. The back cover of Dave Hunt's The Seduction of Christianity notes that the adoption of fashionable philosophies by prominent Christian leaders and their loyal following is symptomatic of a great apostasy that must occur before Christ's second coming. Notice two things. First, Hunt has now placed the great apostasy before the rapture, a major departure from traditional pre-tribulational dispensational theology. Second, the church has been seduced before. Rampant immorality stalked the church prior to the reformational awakening of the 15th and 16th centuries. Doctrinal error overshadowed even the most basic message of the gospel. Was that the end of the world? In a way, it was. The end of the Renaissance world came, and a powerful gospel message emerged from the struggles of the Reformation. Was the church seduced prior to Luther and Calvin? Most certainly. Were these great Christian leaders able to choose between the original and the counterfeit? Did they and millions more escape the seduction of Christianity? Yes. Is it possible that the present heresies are not a sign of the end, but a sign of a new reformation? But there is even more at stake here. For decades, the preoccupation with speculative prophecy has embarrassed and immobilized the church. As children, we learned Aesop's fable of Shepherd Boy and the Wolf crying wolf. A mischievous lad was set to mind some sheep used in jest to cry wolf wolf. When the people at work in the neighboring fields came running to the spot he would laugh at them for their pains. One day the wolf came in reality and the boy this time cried wolf wolf in earnest but the men having been so often deceived disregarded his cries and the sheep were left at the mercy of the wolf. Of course if you cry long enough you just might be the one to get it right but by then there might not be anyone listening. Preaching about the end of the world has long been used by religious groups as a way of pleading with the lost to commit themselves to Jesus Christ before he returns. Such a motivating device can backfire on even the most well-intentioned evangelist. What happens if a listener shouts out, Preachers like you have been telling us for decades that the world is coming to an end. Why should we believe you now? Those who are sure that the end is near should heed the warning from someone who does believe that Jesus is returning soon. The date-setters will have a heyday as the year 2000 approaches. It will be a fever. It will sell pamphlets and books by the millions. But if Jesus does not come back by the year 2000, it is hard to imagine any credibility being left for the Bible prophecy message unless we begin a strong program right now to offset the heresy of date-setting. Ignoring it will not make it go away. Only by preaching the true and dignified message of the Lord's return and by strongly denouncing date setting can we hope to maintain confidence in the Bible message of Jesus' return. Conclusion In the past decade, Christians have begun to fight back against the humanistic establishment. Many have also rediscovered the hope that the visible church of Jesus Christ will be victorious on earth because Christians in every area of life will be victorious. Many people, both Christians and non-Christians, are troubled by this resurgence. Dave Hunt and others see it as a sign of impending judgment, a fulfillment of biblical prophecies about the last days. We believe, on the contrary, that it may be a sign of impending reformation, but keep in mind that even reformation takes time. It does not come in an instant.